church used the fire and brimstone and the fear and shame, and now the progressive left is using it. Um, and for me, that's that's an appeal. That's not a critique. That's me going like, hey, as the church, we have tried that, and it does not work. It it is not just does it not it does not work. It it is wrong because it harms people. Um, and so I think that's my appeal to the progressive left. Um, is to say, what if there's a way forward uh, where openness is on offer? Because openness is not what you received or what you experienced in your upbringing. And so when we don't experience an openness that is required in the fertile ground of spirituality, we are pushed into either one, being closed and accepting that closed system, be it a, a cult or whatever you want to say, or we go into what we've seen, which is this you know, we call it the neo-fundamentalism of the progressive movement, which is the, ex- it's a recapitulation of the exact same thing, but with different set of beliefs. I'm Joshua S. Porter, and my book, Death to Deconstruction, is out now. For the last few weeks and for a few weeks to come, I'm having conversations with people who, like me, have lots of good reasons they could have abandoned Christianity, the Bible, Jesus, the church, but they haven't. And I ask them Why? If you want to do me a favor, there's a few ways that you can really, really help me out. One is obviously by buying a copy of Death to Deconstruction. Two is telling other people about it, especially by posting about it on your social media outlets. Three is by leaving the book a good review on Amazon.com. Fourth is doing what you're doing right now, listening to the Death to Deconstruction podcast and giving it a good review on the Apple Podcast app. And then finally, you can follow my social media outlets for updates about the book or future books, speaking engagements, stuff that I'm doing. Gavin Bennett is a pastor of communities in Portland, Oregon, who at this point has seen and heard it all and lived through a lot of it himself and can't seem to shake this thing called the church. So I knew you long before the most one of the most important things in either of our lives took place do you want to hear the story yeah (laughs) that's a great hook i have no idea what you're talking about sometime in 2017 gavin and i with another few friends sat down around uh, a dinner table in my home with dice in hand Mm. and played our first as that group our first dungeons and dungeons and dragons campaign together okay. or yeah. began no it was a one-off we played a one-off the first time yeah remember that i do I, never, I remember that now yeah yeah that is probably uh, one of the more important formational moments in either of our lives and especially in our friendship in our yeah well certain, yeah but but more than that but more I than mean, that yeah. individually yeah yeah just yeah, as human absolutely. beings i mean we've got tattoos to prove it so we did we eventually got tattoos everyone in our D party has matching tattoos <laughs> uh in fact <laughs> Uh, one time, not in not so distant memory, um, I was invited to teach at Gavin's church. Gavin was assigned to introduce me. Mm-hmm. I think just uh, coincidentally, it wasn't like, mm-hmm. oh, he's your friend, so introduce him. Y- yep. You were just on on the schedule to introduce yep. me that evening, and uh, so he gets on stage. And then another friend of ours, who's in our D and D party, mm-hmm. happened to be on the uh, itinerary mm-hmm. to read from the scriptures that night. So he gets up there, does a reading. Gavin's introducing me, and then I come up there, and then all three of us were like, "We have matching tattoos." <laughs> we didn't really say anything else about what they were mm-hmm. or why. We just said, "Well, mm-hmm. so yeah. you figure that one out for yourself." And then we all, you yeah. know, went about our separate ways. And people kept asking me, "I'm like, what? Do you guys really have tattoos?" I said, "Yeah, we really do." But it was cold, and everyone's wearing layers, so you're like, "Ah, oh, I don't want to have to take off this jacket and pull up my sleeve to show you this yeah. 
truly excellent tattoo. Yeah. But it's there. It's there. I did have an uh, an older woman um, ask me what it was, and I explained it to her, and she uh, rebuked me. Wow. Can you believe that? Yeah, tell yeah. me. I was like, wow. She was like, I feel really uh, concerned for you that <laughs> that you <laughs> Wait, guys what setting would, is this? It was literally on Sunday after, oh, it's in after church. you got yeah, after yeah. you got off stage, she came up to me and she was like, Wow, that was really great. What tattoo do you guys have? And I was explaining it's a D twenty with the number seventeen and all that kind of stuff. And she was like, Well, what's a D twenty? And I was like, Oh, it's just like a from a game that we play and she just kept digging. So I was like, Okay, it's from Dungeons and Dragons and she didn't know what to do. It's like I told her Santa wasn't real or something. She just like really panicked and was like, I feel really concerned. And I had to explain to her, we don't actually cast spells and we're not actually conjuring demons and it's all make believe. And she's like, well, but do you use voices? And are you in, are you role? Actually <laughs> she really put you in a corner. T- it was really tough. Cause I had a, a line of other people waiting to ask me about communities and things like that. And I was trying to be like, I've never met you and I have not seen her since. And so. then you had to say, well, yeah, we do voices, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But we have yet to see a real demon in the room and we've yeah. yet to actually cast a curse. And yep. Not yet. <laughs> so far, so good. That's good. Let's, yeah, continue. I that. do most of the voices, to be fair. So mm-hmm. you could have said, like, well, I don't do voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I was like, I couldn't, I'm not really good at accents and I can't do voices anyway. So I'm not the fun one to, to do things like that. And I was like, but I don't wear a costume if that helps. That's what I told her. So <laughs> <laughs> she seemed to like that. She's like, okay, that's good. And Gavin gets, uh, I'll tell it because inevitably somebody listening to this does play Dungeons and Dragons and they, yeah. they're like, Ooh, hooray. <laughs> you know, they feel as if they are, are more connected to both of us now. Mm. Um, Gavin gets most exasperated in our party Man. with uh, NPCs. Yeah. Now, for those of you that don't play Dungeons & Dragons, an NPC is a non-playable character, meaning it's just a, someone that you meet along the way that you don't control. The dungeon master, who's me, <laughs> controls the NPC. And they can be helpful or less so, but they're just somebody who shows up. And uh, you lose patience for them. Well, but they but. seem to particularly come after my character. <laughs> like you're talking about it like it's this uh, totally neutral thing that nobody's controlling. But I feel like <laughs> you uniquely know how uniquely frustrated I can get by these things. And they just tend to always pick me out. And then that's your perception. And then I, I'll lose it. They antagonize or. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or just mysterious or cryptic, evenly <laughs> cryptic to everyone in the party. Uh, you know, maybe you just have a unique threshold, a uniquely <laughs> thin threshold. Or well, that's threshold. already true. But yeah, <laughs> especially when it comes to make believe, I just don't know what to do about that. So, so wow, we've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for years. Yeah, but before then, mm-hmm. um, I actually met Gavin Bennett uh, at church in a, I guess it was something like a college group. Mm-hmm. Maybe they we called it young adults or something like that, yep. but it's essentially a, a gathering for college age students and young adults. And um, this is the place where I first gave a sermon in my life, and hmm. uh, where I was first kind of involved to any you know significant degree with a, a ministry, quote mm. unquote. And someone tells us the dude who was running it, running mm. the ministry, he says, "Hey, we got a, we got some." fresh fish we got new blood young blood coming to he didn't use these terms these are my cooler terms someone new is going to be with us tonight and in steps gavin mm-hmm. and right away i'm like oh who's this we don't i don't know who this is i'm skeptical by nature and immediately like mm, but are they are they going to be a good fit and uh 
uh, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember shaking your hand one night in First Baptist mm. in downtown Portland, and you said something nice to me, mm. uh, which is really disarming. You're like, oh, you, you're Josh Porter. I've heard nice things about you, which is just a, an ordinary colloquialism. It's something mm. kind that you say to people, mm. you know. Yeah. I, it may or may not have actually been true. <laughs> but I was like, oh, wow, he likes me. I guess I like him then. Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was that easy. You're, yeah. you're an easy oh, yeah. win. Okay, yeah. that's good to know. No, I actually had. I had because I had, was talking to Michael, who our other friend who also has this tattoo with us. And he listened to Showbread religiously growing up, which I had never heard of. And he was losing his mind that that you and Patrick were doing anything with Bridgetown and it made him lose his mind so i was like i oh, have so the good things you had heard turned out to be from a guy who would later get the same tattoo as us so. yeah wow yeah isn't it beautiful how so everything comes together i bought into the cult you know yeah and then you said oh yeah i've heard good things i was like oh okay so he's nice i guess he's all right um <laughs> but at that time you were you already working as a, an admin at the church yeah. where you worked uh i i actually was not at that time at that time i actually worked at a prison for a little bit and then worked at not incarcerated. Correct. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Worked at a prison and then I was a nanny and then I was at that other church doing admin stuff. Right. That's quite a career trajectory. It's <laughs> what happens when you get a degree in Christian ministries. You can't really find a job. <laughs> how, how close together were those three um, gigs? Within a year. Oh, I did wow. all three of those things in one year. Wow. Yeah. So then you end up getting stuck behind a desk. Mm hmm. In um, a very large suburban church, mm-hmm. mega church, and you're answering the phones, landlines, and everything. Real landlines. Answering landlines and sending emails and coordinating stuff. Yeah. Which I assume that you're probably good at because you're an organized individual. And I really love details and organization. Yeah. So did you like that? Job? I I did probably more than I should have. But <laughs> I really liked that job. Yeah. But while he's working at this other church. You were also involved with and attending mm-hmm. um, another church where I worked and where uh, it is kind of a complicated thing there. These churches are, were essentially at that time campuses of mm-hmm. one of a larger kind of network before becoming autonomous. So it wasn't like you were moonlighting at a <laughs> yeah. second church. They were the connected. Yes, they were connected. Yeah. So, but eventually you made the jump from being an administrator at the suburban megachurch to becoming a pastor mm-hmm. at the church, which was then like um, entirely localized within the like urban center of Portland, Oregon. Yeah. So was that something that you had planned? Like was your aspiration at the time like, man, I want to be a pastor or was it something that at the more that you were involved in church, you thought, Oh, this mm-hmm. is something that I maybe could do, would like to do. Mm-hmm. How'd you get, how'd you go from the desk job to the pastor job? Those are different things. Yeah. Very different things. That's a really good question. I, I'm like the, the really, really rare kid who like my first job I ever wanted to do was be a missionary. And like, I always wanted to be a pastor. Like those were the two things that I through my entire life, I always wanted to do, which is why I got a degree in ministry and was like, this is what I want to do. So for, for me, I, and I also happen to really enjoy logistics and organization. So it felt like a natural jumping point. And I think the part that's felt the most confusing is realizing how few pastors actually are organizationally minded and how much they run their assistants into the ground because 
they think that yeah you're the exception to the rule together but for me it was a natural jumping point of like of course i I start here because this is what i want to learn the systems and all of that but eventually i wanted to move that forward into to be a pastor so that's been my weird i was never a rock star it was never a superhero it was always a pastor or a missionary my aunt growing up um, was a missionary she still is she lives out in thailand now and does leadership development with native people out there and it was just, I saw that, and then I saw the way that my church kind of wrapped around my family growing up. So uh, this is maybe more than you were asking for, but I have a twin brother, and when we were really, really young, he was diagnosed with leukemia, and we were out in Maryland, which is where my parents met and got married. Uh, and when he was diagnosed, we the short version of it is the doctors had said like, hey, he will likely either, we can kind of keep healing him where like he'll go into remission, but then it'll get it again. It's just the way that the cancer works. Or there's an experimental treatment out in Oregon, Portland, Oregon with Dornbecker Children's Hospital. Y'all can move out there and try it and see if it works. And so my parents opted for that. We relocated at a couple years old um, to Portland area and treatment worked great. It was really wonderful. He's totally in remission. Everything's totally fine. He's entirely healed. But at the time we plugged into a church um, in the area and well before any of these other churches we're talking about were even existing. And the way that my church wrapped around my family, because the wider context is my parents had my brother and I at 18 and 19. And by the time we were in Portland and he was in getting treatment at the hospital, they had four boys um, and he was getting treatment. And my parents were 22 and 23 or something like that and had no idea what they were doing. And the church really stepped in and stepped up. And I saw the way that they cared and how tangible that care actually changed my family's life. And I thought, man, I want to give back in some way uh, in the future like that. And so I think that was sort of maybe some of the initial movements in, in me of why I wanted to be in ministry. Yeah, okay. That's really interesting. So you bring up a couple things that I want to flash back to. Because I, I do want to ask you about your years of um, being actually fulfilling that childhood dream of becoming a pastor, which <laughs> is exciting. rare yeah. and not as not uh, the most glamorous dream, <clears throat> but good for you. <laughs> but then you actually did it. So that's that's also rare if certainly if someone's aspiring to be a pastor and then uh, ascends to the ranks in which they can see pastoral ministry being carried out. They are usually deflated by um, the <laughs> drudgeries of what they can observe the job being or by, by cynicism, by mm-hmm. seeing corruption in the church and hypocrisy and being like, Oh, never mind, This mm-hmm. is not something I want to participate in, but you did. But before that, before you even made it to the point where you could become cynical about church, you're growing up with, um, a sibling who's battling a life threatening illness. Yeah. Um, and you are a kid who wants to be a missionary, wants to be. So you're raised by people who love Jesus, mm. right? For the most part, yeah. They Neither of my parents really had faith of their own until we moved to Portland and they oh, started wow. going to this church. My dad's mom uh, is a Christian, was a Christian, and was constantly going like, but they were always Southern Baptist. And so my dad was like, probably pass on that. That wasn't, uh, <laughs> that wasn't helpful for him in his upbringing. Um, and then my mom was raised entirely non-religious. And so they're, they're not really first generation, but I kind of consider them first generation. So what made them want to go to a church in Portland? They needed help. Um, my, at the time my dad's mom was going there as well. And, um, she was like, come try it out. And they so were they like, had an in through, yeah, yeah. they had a, an in and they just knew like, where else do you go? 
to find people who can kind of come alongside you and be in these really hard places. And so they thought we, we don't have like the privilege of sitting back and going like, let's try these different things. So they jumped in and gave it their all. And I feel really grateful for that. Cause that, how was old were I, you back then? Um, probably, uh, three maybe. Okay. Um, and then I was there until I was 18. So, so you're, you mostly remember being part of the church. And, yep. Very okay. much so. So you're the kid who's growing up, you know, um, first generation Christian in your family with your parents have come to faith. Now this is, you know, what you take for granted because mm-hmm. this is what you're the way that you're being raised in the in the church and with people who are caring for you and your family and your brother. Um, was there ever any part early on um, in that experience where you had the classic? Uh, I'm not so sure Mm. about this or did you manage to make it into early and then, you know, the first stages of adulthood being like, "Ah, I've not really thrown my entire belief structure into doubt quite yet. Probably that second one. And I think it's more, um, the, the good side of my bad personality, which is like, I tend to assume I'm the one who's wrong. Uh, And so if there were any doubts, it was not, God, I was doubting it was me. Hmm. And, um, and that has, that shifted throughout the years. But at the time it was like, man, God is the reason my parents have a job. God is the reason Balin's getting better. God is the, like, there were so many things pointing to his goodness towards us that I didn't have any, um, it wasn't that I didn't doubt it. It's just, I didn't see any reason to do it. Um, because he was so, um, present to my family and really provided for us and really, I mean, we grew up on food stamps and welfare. Like he literally, it felt like God was the one who was providing for us. So you were able to kind of your default disposition was to attribute the good things to God. And if there were bad things, whatever it was, it Mm -hmm. wasn't God. Mm -hmm. That was just the way you assumed the exchange took place. Yep. Which is actually a very... I would argue theologically mature way of <laughs> understanding it, it the felt more like of the a, world. a coping mechanism at sure. the time. But yes. yeah, I think now if I can get to that place, it's maturity. But back then I think it was more like I can't understand the world any other way or else my life will fall apart. Yes. So you had a childlike faith yeah. that took the goodness of God for granted and that yeah. managed to, I would say by the grace of God, carry you into mm. um, or beyond childhood uh, with your faith intact and not yet rickety. Yeah. Not yet on a rickety foundation. Yeah. Um, but then certainly, uh, and forgive me for being presumptuous, <laughs> but a lot of our friendships, since we have worked at the same churches and similar churches, and since uh, we, our jobs have a lot of overlap and similarities, that like you're a pastor, I'm a pastor, and um, obviously very different in their expressions and context, but some some stuff is just universal. I think to people in this field, we spend a lot of time uh, commiserating (laughs) about what it's like working at a church, church, the difficult things and not just like, you know, what we would call pastoral ministry, but um, interpersonal dynamics and the politics of church. And, you know, yeah. uh, Has there been throughout that journey, a time when your either faith in church itself was called into question or felt as if it was, you know, um, becoming flimsier Mm. or your, um, 
your default disposition of attributing all these good things to God finally became a little more tenuous? Yeah, I would say probably there's a lot of those. The one that comes to mind is like when I was, uh, the reason that my family left that church um, that raised us and really helped us was around church drama and a church split and all kinds of, uh, you know, without like getting too deep into the, can you list some names, the the names and the weeds and all of that. Um, and I can only speak from my experience as a kid in high school at the time, but it felt like, um, there was one of the pastors there who was really, really close to my family and had grown up there himself, um, was ousted in what seems even looking back the little that I have context wise in a very poor way that caused a lot of pain in the church. Um, and it wasn't handled well. Um, and it was for really unnecessary reasons of, I think it was that, um, they didn't think he was connecting to people well. And it, there was like, it, it was nothing improper. There was no sin involved. There was nothing. And they told him that they were like, we just feel like we want to get some fresh blood in this role. Wow. And, uh, it was really painful. And my family was really close to their family. Uh, and there was no sort of like uprising. Cause this is an, just a really upstanding guy who still loves the Lord really faithfully. Uh, and moved on really well and didn't burn the place down when he left and just did a really beautiful job. So uh, watching him leave was really helpful, but but him leaving was really hard. That was the place where I thought like, man, these people are just, these people being the church. Uh, what are they doing? Like they're missing, like it was hard for me to look at um, as a very critical person in general, the people who I did think were actually not helping. And then this guy who I thought, I'm like, man, he's changing my life. And yet he's the one you're picking to leave. Like it made, it was when I started questioning priorities of the church around like, oh, maybe is it about money? Is it about influence? Is it about, and I can't speak to whether that was the case because I wasn't in the room for those conversations. But um, that's when I started, started, started to sort of have that cynical mindset. This is a big church. Very big church. Okay. Yeah. Bigger than any of the ones we've been involved in. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's quite big. So, Mm -hmm. but then you continue to work in big churches. And the reason I'm bringing up the size of the church is not to pick on the size of the church for being big or small, but that just, you know, uh, logistically, or I guess inevitably the size lends itself to more complications and more problems and more, more people, more problems. And the bigger the staff, the the more likelihood for there being drama and And politics and and politics and all that. Yeah. You went from a big church to another big church. Mm-hmm. Um, did, when you moved into the place of actually working for, when you got that admin job, was the first time you worked at a church? Yes. So I was volunteer leader, taught kids ministry since I was in middle school, taught middle school and high school. Like I volunteered my whole upbringing, um, but that was my first church job where I got paid to be at church. Yeah. So you you must have. Again, I don't mm-hmm. mean to be presumptuous, but. <laughs> When you get a look behind the curtain, it's often jarring. Yeah. Because, you know, when you're a volunteer leader, you you even tend to experience some of the like, what the heck? What are we doing? Who made this decision? And what? They're doing this? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, The trickle down effect of um, how it changes what you can and can't do (laughs) as a leader and what you think is best and inevitably personalities bump up against each other. But when you become an admin, even unique to being a pastor, you have access to... Uh, you're, you're held responsible for all these um, technicalities mm-hmm. and uh, and probably stuff that has to do with money and schedules and staffing and mm-hmm. exchanging emails and being responsible for the, the mm-hmm. <laughs> to some degree 
um, professional secrecy, mm-hmm. not like immoral per- professional secrecy, but the, you know, like this is not for everyone to know. It's an organization and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Did any of that, um, man, what, what is the church doing stuff from before reemerge or just follow you into that place when you were now an admin for a big church? <laughs> yeah, actually I, I would, I would say it probably grew cause I had access, like you're saying to, to, I got to see more things than I did before. Uh, and so my disillusionment with not just church, but specifically church structure and church hierarchy and the idea of leadership and eldership and, uh, all of that kind of, um, really hit me in a different way where I started realizing like, oh, 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 the Bible isn't clear about certain things like this. So we're actually just trusting people's interpretation of these things and kind of went into that classic, um, really good and really helpful if done well. I, and I don't know that I did it well, but I'm still here. So I, somebody helped me along the way. Yeah. Um, but form of deconstruction that says like, what's actually going on? Like who is our, um, it's, it's kind of like a, I'm trying not to use like technical theology language, but it's like, it's like an appeal to authority. It's like, how do we know what we know? And you're realizing at a coming of age sort of time, like I've taken for granted how we know what we know. And for me, one of the first big moments that kind of sparked that was around women in ministry. And I was raised in a church that did was very hierarchical male and female and believed that only men could not just be elders or pastors, but could teach. And, uh, and I took it for granted having grown up there that like whenever a woman was on the stage, her husband was with her, uh, or a pastor or an elder was alongside her. Um, and it, that didn't seem, I, and what's odd is that didn't actually produce in me a patriarchal misogyny that I think most people assume it would. It kind of was like, Oh, okay. I mean, I guess, I guess that makes yeah, sense. You just took it for granted. This yeah. is the this is the view that you've been given. Yeah. I didn't hate women out of it or, you know, any of that per se, but it actually then made me start asking deeper questions of like, well, why, why do we believe these things? And I uh, then went to a university where the campus pastor was a woman. And I remember emailing one of my pastors um, at my first church. And I had said like, Hey, I don't know what to do. Like, what should I do? And his response to me was um, in pure, good heartedness. He said, as long as she's not your pastor, that's okay. And I was like, Oh, that makes so much sense. This is great. Got plugged in a a local church where it was again, male hierarchy, all that kind of stuff. But ironically, I also worked for her for four years. Uh, I was her, I was the admin in the spiritual life office there. And just year by year, I started asking questions and nobody, she knew what I believed. She didn't care um, because she knew what she believed. And I just slowly started watching her and I watched the lives around her change. And I watched the way that she interpreted texts that I took for granted. Sounds like you were coming dangerously close to being pastored by this woman. I know. <laughs> I know. Imagine that I've actually since gone back to her and I was like, you actually really were formative. And I was like, I know we went toe to toe on certain theological issues, but like you were my pastor and like, we've had really great conversations since then. And, uh, but yeah, she, she pastored me into, um, really doing the work myself rather than letting it be done for me. Um, and I want to be careful because I think that that can be that itself feels like a very individualistic statement of like, don't trust anybody, do it all yourself. But I think that there is a helpful form of like asking the why to what people are saying. Um, and even more so not just to the church, yes, to the church, but I even say, think to like this kind of neo-fundamentalism coming out of like the progressive movement right now, where like 
asking why is like, you're, it, don't do it. You can't do it. And it's like they've taken up the guilt and shame and fire and brimstone that was used by the churches in the 70s and 80s. And it's as if I had a, I have a, a friend who uses the imagery of like, it's like the churches who talked about fire and brimstone and used fear and shame to get people into right action and belief. They realized it wasn't working and so they like gave it to goodwill. And then the progressive movement went over and so like, oh, that's so what? cool. Nobody's using this. <laughs> Let's try that. <laughs> and, um, and so, uh, yeah, that's why we need to ask why is because there's a lot of assumptions being made on our behalf. And I think the scriptures teach very clearly, and it's been my experience, and I think it's been your experience, uh, that Jesus says, like, if we seek truth, we will find it. So, like, I'm, my job as a pastor is not to guard truth. My, pas- my job as a pastor is to put people's hand into the hand of Jesus and to walk with them while he reveals the Holy Spirit inside of them who will reveal truth to them. So I'm not afraid of doubt. And I think doubt, you know, um, I can't remember who it is, maybe J.J. Swoboda, who says, like, doubt is a form of faith. And I, and I think that's right. Like, obviously not for us to stay there. Um, but it's a very integral part of faith is to start asking questions on our own. Yeah. And the way that you describe it, I think is revealing because you, as you're saying that it's not your job to guard the truth per se, it's your job to put your hair, to put people's hands in the hands of Jesus and walk with them. So even then the word picture is inherently, um, collaborative and communal Mm -hmm. as opposed to, um, hyper individualistic and yeah open to the wildly varying and entirely isolated uh interpretation of the individual and subject yeah. they become the arbiter of you know oh, it feels good this feels right so i yeah. i prefer this and then it becomes you know the frankenstein's monster of deconstructed spirituality where you're sewing together grotesque pieces yeah. of different kinds of incongruent spiritualities to make something that um, isn't an actual And slapping person. the name Jesus on Yes, it. and Jesus is in there. Yeah. Because who doesn't like Jesus? Yeah, you know? he's a great guy. He's very likable. And he has enough good quotes that you can call on um, that make him feel, oh man, Jesus said that? That's awesome. It amazes me how often people, maybe unknowingly, but um, or maybe knowingly quote Jesus in the popular culture of expressions that are unique to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always turn to my kids and go, that's from Jesus. <laughs> you know, just recently we were watching a little cartoon um, that our family loves. And one of the cartoon dogs leaned over and said to another cartoon dog, the truth will set you free. Ooh. And I was like, that's from Jesus. Let's go. Like, what really? They're talking about Jesus on bluey. Mm. Well, not really, not directly, but in a, mm. in a way. So who doesn't like Jesus? Mm. But, the you know the the thing about it is that deconstruction often feels this is my personal assessment it feels as if it is uh presents an illusion of communal um spirituality mm-hmm. but the problem is is that it can never form any real community because there's no never any uh orthodoxy or there's never a shared perspective of doctrine mm-hmm. like we hold to these truths and um, and it's what unites us. It's almost as if, you know, like somebody shows up to, I don't know what the best um, metaphor, like someone shows up to a dojo to learn karate mm-hmm. and uh, and somebody beside them is like, I want, I'm going to learn jujitsu while I'm here. And the instructor's like, well, that's fine, but I'm, I don't teach jujitsu. Mm-hmm. And the person next to them is like, I'm going to be a kickboxer. 
Mm-hmm. And the other teacher's like, well, again, that's fine, but that's not really what we're doing here. Mm-hmm. And then the person in the middle is like, well, I wanted to learn karate. And then the two people on either side are saying like, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's what we're all doing. Mm-hmm. We're like, well, well, no, yeah. <laughs> we're not actually all doing that. And how can we hold one another to any kind of mm-hmm. communal standard if we're doing completely different things? Mm-hmm. Um, so it becomes kind of like a, a place where only digital quote unquote community can actually exist subreddit community or yeah. you know message board community where there's never real any accountability or vulnerability you just say like you're united around the thing you know you don't want yeah which is church or doctrine or whatever mm-hmm. or orthodoxy which is ironically what the historic global church has always been about which is why i think it's really interesting because that religion of deconstruction tends to be um i want to be a little bit careful here but I'm just going to be reckless. I'm going to be reckless. It tends to be accidentally intellectually colonialistic um, where, and theologically colonialistic where predominantly the religion of deconstructions coming out of the West um, millennials, Gen Z. um, And, and I think what, what we see and what won't be explicitly said, but what's seen as I watch as a pastor, all of these denominations splitting specifically around the issue of gender and sexuality. And I understand it's so much more complex than we have time to talk about. Um, but time and again, what you'll see is the split at an international denominational level is always the West and the world. And the West is going progressive and the world is guarding historic Christian sexuality. And and the unspoken is the West saying, you're just not there yet, but you'll get there. Don't worry. Yeah. And that's colonialistic. And because then you're exporting your theology in podcast and in music and in teaching and in books all over the world. And I actually think that the historic Christian um, understanding of gender and sexuality is, it's a better image of the kingdom of God because the, it, it has a higher level of representation um, as Jesus has designed it in the book of Revelation when he says every tribe and tongue and nation will bow down. The religion of deconstruction is predominantly, in my experience, white Westerners who are yep. young. Usually educated, often affluent, yeah. who have a- more access to information and but then the irony is that the deconstruction, the Western predominantly white affluent educated deconstruction movement likes to uh, parade under the banner of right side of history yeah. as if they're moving the needle toward utopia. Which is what happens in every fascist nation it, in history. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And it, it is an, an, an ethical and philosophical imposition on the rest of the world, but it's... Uh, they, we are writing ourselves a license to do these things, to be become imperialistic mm-hmm. because we're right. Yeah. If we're right, then mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter mm-hmm. if it seems like colonization or if it seems like we're being disrespectful of, um, you know, people all over the world who are non-white and non-affluent and non-educated because, but we just know better. So yeah. if we know what's right, we have, you know, like objective morality on our side, mm-hmm. which is the same you know, a uh, uh, philosophy that powered things like, uh, you know, manifest destiny. I was like, what does it matter? Like, yeah. we, but we're right. And so yeah. like we have, we have the truth on our side and it's not just, uh, Christianity. This is another enormous. And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm being a bit uh, dark in my humor, but hilarious 
oversight or um, silent area of the deconstructionist herd mentality or the progressivist kind of spiritual herd mentality is that um, take, for example, the constant battle with um, American um, movie studios trying to release movies across the world. Mm. The movie market is an enormous global market and a lot of films, big mainstream films make the lion's share of their box office gross in China or uh, or some other country that's not America. And so studios have a vested interest in appealing to the sensibilities of foreign countries um, because they know that they need to make a profit mm. in China or wherever else they're releasing these movies. But in the West, there's increasing pressure from a very vocal, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say minority, mm. <laughs> Because the the deconstructionist herd um, likes to maybe and maybe sometimes this is an assumption or maybe sometimes it's willful, you know, willfully deceptive. But to assume that like they're speaking for the majority of people like Mm -hmm. we all want this. We this is what we all think. You know, everyone else is just a dinosaur. They're they're religious and antiquated and on the wrong side of history. When in reality especially in a global perspective, it's a teeny, teeny, tiny minority that mm-hmm. makes up the kind of religious progressivism that is so outspoken in the West and especially on social media. So that if you go into these little corners um, of the internet, it feels as if, Oh, this is the way the world is now. And this is how everyone feels. So there's this mounting pressure in the West to um, progressivize for a lack of a better way of saying it. Um, Hollywood and Mm. to, you know, uh, we need uh, uh, an easy example is like there's a fan petitions online to uh, out Elsa from the frozen movies. Oh, wow. So that it was a huge outcry before the second film came out and spoiler alert, if you haven't seen frozen Two, Elsa is not outed explicitly in frozen Two. But there's still this pressure, very vocal, again, I think minority of the internet being like, we really want to see Elsa be a lesbian in uh, frozen three. And the uh, reality is that Disney is this gigantic soulless corporation that obviously they hire creative people to make films, but they're like, we need this movie to play in China. We need to make a lot of money. We need it to play in these other, you know, Eastern territories that uh, will not play it if, if Elsa is gay in Frozen 3. Or, you know, Disney through Marvel is releasing... Uh, the Thor recent Thor sequel, which has uh, LGBTQ characters in the movie. It's subtle and it's, it feels a little lip servicey. Like someone just happens to mention very quickly, like, Oh, by the way, I'm gay. Yeah. <laughs> and then they run off screen or something. Yeah. And so it's not playing like the, the movie is being deliberately banned mm. is a strong word, but from uh, predominantly uh, Muslim countries mm. with Islamic governments mm that are releasing statements and saying like, this is not in keeping with the ethics, with the, the moral position of our government and country. So we're not going to play this Marvel movie. And you know, the world kind of, Oh my God freaks out. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I remember reading a, a, an interview with um, Chris Evans who plays uh, Captain America in the oh, Marvel okay. movies. Are you familiar? I am. Uh, yeah, barely, but yeah, yeah, I am. Yep. He's a uh, handsome, muscular fellow. Looks like a Ken doll and mm-hmm. look and is great. Captain America. And was voicing Buzz Lightyear in the contentious oh, yeah. prequel movie. Okay. And uh, Lightyear has a gay character 
that was, you know, much ado about this gay character in Lightyear mm-hmm. that amounts to, you know, one, the same thing, one scene kind of thing. And parents were upset and the people were upset at the parents for being upset. Now all the headlines about Lightyear are only about this thing. And really the movie wasn't even any good. So who cares mm-hmm. either way? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they asked Chris Evans how he felt about the outrage about the movie not being picked up to play in certain foreign territories. And he said that he just wants these people to die out. Um, wow. And I thought, man, that's an incredible thing to say, because I'm sure that in his mind, he thought he was referring to, you know, hateful, bigoted, Mm -hmm. religious right in America. But in reality, he's referring, he's like, you you essentially said that you want Muslims to die out. Like what a, but no one stopped and said, wow, what an incredibly bold thing to -hmm. say. There's just a hooray. You know, it's just a really short sighted perspective of the rest of the world. It's the kind of like, I don't know, America is the world, right? Yeah, right, right. We're like, the only people here. Yeah. <laughs> and isn't that what matters? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it makes me think even like, uh, and I think I want to preface with what we're both talking about. Like, neither of us are saying that like the LGBT community is what's wrong in America or they're out to get, uh, I, I don't. No, it's an easy example to cite in the kind of yeah. uh, scenario or the, the picture I'm painting. Yeah, exactly. But like, and, and so then what I'm saying at a theological level is, the my concern is that essentially there's this term in theology of like what you don't uh, relieve you relive and it's this idea that like where you've encountered pain in the past if you don't actually heal from it you'll continue it on in your life and it's because our bodies and our and our and our souls and our minds were all made to heal themselves it's why when we get a paper cut like that one book i don't remember it was and we probably shouldn't say it so we don't spoil it because i know (laughs) how you feel about spoilers but do you remember that one book um that guy he was a missionary to some planet somewhere and the aliens had like a somebody got like a paper cut or something and they threw a funeral immediately and he was like what i don't understand what's happening it was because their bodies didn't heal themselves and it's just this weird paradigm for us at like a sci-fi level where we're like Oh yeah, wait, hold on. Our bodies were designed to heal themselves. We don't panic even at a broken bone or even at, honestly a severed limb. Like our lives can go on. And the same is true we're finding more and more in neurobiology. Like when it comes to the neuroscience of the brain and trauma, it was designed to heal itself. And that's why EMDR works really well for people who've gone through post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and, and EMDR is oh, for I actually, our listeners. I can't, um, I, the acronym always messes me up, but essentially what it is, is it's this idea that your brain, um, when it encounters trauma or um, to put it more like a colloquial way, like a, a problem it can't solve, what it will do is it will spin through in your mind again and again and again until it can figure out a way to solve that problem. And so uh, it's like a computer running code and looking for a solution and exactly arriving at the can, same error message. Yeah. And and it comes out as somebody being triggered. So it's like when, a, you know, the classic uh, trope of uh, that's very true and real is like a veteran coming back from war, a car backfires and immediately they're back in the war. It's because there was a problem, a trauma that their brain experienced. And I want to stay in my lane. I'm not a therapist but my loose understanding is their brain experienced a trauma and a problem it couldn't solve because it shouldn't we weren't supposed to encounter things like that i think that's actually evidence for the fall and for the reality of sin and evil in our world um but what happens in emdr uh, is it's this idea of bilateral stimulation where there's two sides of your brain 
and where there's different ones of like a light flashing on a screen from left to right or like buzzers in your hand that buzz left and right or even like you know you can like tap your legs like left right left in a certain rhythm and as they're doing it what they found is as they ask you questions and invite you back into some of these places your brain sends the problem from the left side to the right side and back and forth in a way uh, that starts to unravel it and the triggers and the alarms and the reactions become less strong uh, as as they once did and so our bodies and our brains were designed to heal themselves because what we don't relieve we will relive where we have experienced trauma in the past if we don't experience healing from it we're going to do it again it's why everybody who has had um, everybody not everybody where people have uh, you know horrible fathers or horrible mothers and they vow never to be like their mom or dad and then they have a kid and out of nowhere they have a crisis because they're like that's exactly what my dad would have done and I did it and it's that whole you know um, Pete Scazzaro has that line of like um, grandpa may be in the grave but he's still in your bones or something like that which is like terrifying terrifying <laughs> to think about but it's the idea that like there's like a limerick for halloween <laughs> it's like what it is the season i guess you know <laughs> but it's that idea of like our our trauma is epigenetic it, it stays in us like if you if you look at like resma minicam there's like different um scholars and thinkers way smarter than me who are doing this work even thinking through um slaves and uh, enslaved people from the um American history and how generations later there's actually still an epigenetic of trauma effect in African-American individuals who have a, an ancestry of slavery. There's something that they carry in their body because of what their their family of origin has gone through. And so that's why therapy is really significant in some of these spaces. I'm getting so off topic and I'm just coming back to that. So here's where I was going with Great. that. We were made to heal ourselves. So if there is a problem that comes up that we don't actually find healing from, we don't relieve it, we end up reliving it. There's this term in spiritual direction. There's this idea of um, wounds being either bleeding or sacred. And if you are trying to do something while your wounds are still bleeding, you will bleed on someone else. But if you do something when your wounds are sacred, you can heal someone else. Um, and I think of that when I think of my friends who are working through deconstruction or who have already deconstructed and left the church, um, as I watch this whole movement, is they've encountered a church or an experience likely of pain or trauma um, and oftentimes what that is, is it's a form of um, spiritual, uh, people like to throw on the term spiritual abuse. I'm not a professional. I can't define it. Um, I think it's used more than it actually is reality. But we do know pain is pain. So they've encountered a pain of some kind in that past that rather than doing the harder work of going internal and actually finding healing and doing that work in that journey, they go external and try to protect other people from ever experiencing it again. Uh, which oh, is wow. which is really a shield of protecting themselves from ever feeling it again. And so I think while the um, inclination is correct, I think the misstep is if you don't have healing, you can only harm. Um, and that's and it, uh, that's not necessarily totally true, but I'm over exaggerating for to make a point. Sure. And w one of the things that I've encountered the most in my friends who have deconstructed uh, is this idea that the, what the church, what they felt that the church or a pastor in their life or uh, religion in general sought to do was to control. It, it didn't give them space to grow and to learn and to figure things out and to ask questions. Questions threatened the system. It threatened the power structures. It slowed things down. For one reason or another, questions were on. They were off the table. You, you can't ask a question or 
their experience was they were told they could and then they did and then people freaked out whether it was about how the church spent money or why there were no women on stage or why can't I do whatever I want with my body or you name it um, but what what's ex- what's being experienced in that space is they feel this deep pain that rather than doing the work of going man where was I wronged and how do I do the slow important work of finding healing in it uh, we instead go external and so instead of feeling relief we relive it but we relive it on a which is why you know we threw in that um, thing earlier about talking about the church used the fire and brimstone and the fear and shame and now the progressive left is using it um, and for me that's that's an appeal that's not a critique that's me going like hey as the church we have tried that and it does not work it, it is not just does it not it does not work it, it is wrong because it harms people um, and so I think that's my appeal to the progressive left um, is to say what if there's a way forward uh, where openness is on offer because openness is not what you received or what you experienced in your upbringing. And so when we don't experience an openness that is required in the fertile ground of spirituality, we are pushed into either one being closed and accepting that closed system, be it a, a cult or whatever you want to say, or we go into what we've seen, which is this, you know, we call it the neo-fundamentalism of the progressive movement, which is the, ex- it's a recapitulation of the exact same thing but with different set of beliefs and instead of them being on the receiving end of power they're on the giving end of power they're on the top and so it's it's the kid who was bullied who becomes a bully yeah um it's it it, and that's where i'm like i that's my critique my critique even beyond theology even beyond all of these things when it comes to progressive left and gender and sexuality is you're recapitulating your pain which can only cause more pain because as human beings, we were designed to procreate, which is actually not a statement on sexuality. I'm realizing. So (laughs) what I mean by that is we were designed in the image of a God who creates things. And so we were designed to create as well. And so the container of our, of our souls automatically will reproduce what's inside of it. That's why Jesus says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when it comes to these issues, if we don't do the deep hard work of excavating our pain uh, we will only reproduce it and so I think my appeal to my friends who are and what I've needed desperately so I've been in therapy for a million years it's like I've needed a space to to work through my pain so that I can encounter a conversation without without being triggered without feeling the need to defend in some way that if I'm not totally open Um, to a conversation I'm having and it could be about anything I mean I have conversations all day long with people who are you know talking about how they're panromantic and demisexual and they're working through uh, you know different experiences of like gender fluidity and and I'm like my response in those situations is like that's awesome what does that mean I don't I don't actually know that I know that term if my response was like how dare you don't you I will never use those pronouns or whatever it is I'm closing off a deeper conversation that they are actually asking to have and what I want to do is to make sure that what I am procreating in the world um, as a single man who's likely never going to get married, I'm still called to procreation. What I want to procreate in the world is love and I want to procreate a space that um, that allows people to grow. And there's that really significant thing in the scriptures of, um, I, I think it was George MacDonald who said like, God loves you just the way you are but he cares way too much about you to let you stay that way. That if I'm watching my friends, um, you know, drowning and I don't go in and help them, then I'm causing harm. And so 
I'm not defending historic Christian orthodoxy because that's mine to defend because I'm a pastor and that's what I'll do to death. I don't. I have found freedom in historic Christian orthodoxy and I want to invite my friends into that as well um, experientially because nobody wins an argument and then you're converted into it's just not how it works it's all experiential it's all relational and so I want to earn the right to have these conversations so I think that's like probably longer than anything we've said before but I wanted to go back to that because I think that's why I think the easiest conversation is around the progressive left right now because it's a recapitulation of the pain many people have experienced and the wounds that they are acting out of are bleeding and they're not sacred It makes me think of, you know, the funny story about Paul and the the monument to the unknown God yeah. and um, the way that Paul, <laughs> it's almost like a, a scene from a movie where he's walked, waltzing around and looking at stuff and he's like, hey, look at this thing. It doesn't even know what God it's for. And well, what's up with this? And somebody comes along and says, oh, you know, that's just our monument to the unknown God. Got to cover everything. There's probably someone we missed. So it's it's like the thank yous in album liner notes that say, and to everyone, <laughs> everyone else. Yeah, <laughs> or the Academy Award speech that says, I'm sure I'm forgetting someone. So to everyone else. So they're they're erect a monument to an unknown God that ought to cover us. And then the gods won't get mad at us. And Paul's like, oh, that's cool. Almost like to the language you're using. Awesome. So tell me about that, because it seems to me that this unknown God you're making this monument to is really Jesus of Nazareth. You know, this dude who got executed as yeah. a criminal of the state, he's alive again, blah, blah, blah. And in my uh, years at following Jesus and with the Bible and as a pastor, this story comes up from time to time and is used in one of two ways that I think uh, are both kind of... Uh, on either side of what would be the, you know, interpretation in the middle that I could be wrong, but I hope is more accurate. And one is like, oh, it's a trick. Paul is tricking them hmm. to get them, you know, like, oh, tell me about this. It's a strategy. It's an evangelistic strategy, yeah. you know. And Do we you can, know where you're going when you go? Exactly. We can teach this to, you know, kids on college campuses and they can use it as an in which becomes, and I don't mean to make any kind of critique on evangelistic strategies, and there are people yeah. who know much more about those things than I do, but it can often become a, uh, a put-on, insincere. It's a, a technique, you know. It's, it's not honoring to people because it doesn't see people as people. It sees them as targets for conversion. Yeah. Or the other way of interpreting it is like, come down into people's worldviews in the most accommodating and permissive way so that you can be like, oh, if you want to worship the unknown God, that's mm. totally fine. Yeah. The unknown God is great. Also Jesus, you know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But I've known you long enough to have had many, many conversations where you are saying both things often in the same breath, which is there's this level of um, 
ideally love-fueled openness that lets people initiate conversations and you're open enough to uh, not just entertain but to honor those conversations. But then in those same conversations where you're telling me about these stories, there's this hardcore commitment to orthodoxy Mm -hmm. that is not um, militant in that it doesn't slam that window on that conversation shut. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's... um, unfortunate to me or that I often find missing from the conversation from the left to the right in the, in the world of deconstruction and from, you know, pastors and Christians reach wanting to engage those who are deconstructing or have deconstructed their faith is this, um, world in which both things can exist Mm -hmm. and in which it's like, you know what? Everyone's in process. Who am I to comment on what they believe? I'm just praying for them. And you know, I hope they come around. And Mm -hmm. so the openness is there and it's, you know, like it's not, it's not militant. It's not mean spirited and it's patient and it's gracious, but there's no, um, it's, it's not even a conversation. It's like, I, I let them, uh, I become a vessel for yeah. the things that they want to say, and I don't. I don't speak back because I don't want to agitate. I don't want to make waves. I mm. don't want to like challenge or or invite any kind of in- accountability. And these are, I should say, like people who know one another. They're in relationship. It's mm. not a stranger on the street. And then on the other end, it's like, you know, I just keep telling them that's just not true. You mm-hmm. know, like you, I'm calling you, like you said. It's like, well, that's just I have to militantly defend orthodoxy, and I. I can't give an inch because these people will take a mile, you Mm. know, these liberals and they're crazy and Mm. all their conversations about pronouns and different kinds of flags. And I just don't, I'm not going to enter. I'm not going to honor any of that. I'm just going to say, well, this is the truth. And if you can't handle it, you can get lost. And I think personally that they're both things can exist in the, or, uh, or the spirit of um, fidelity to orthodoxy Mm. and the openness to have a loving, un- non-threatening conversation can exist in the same place where, you know, you invite someone to say, this is this is where I'm at and this is the stuff that I believe and uh, this is how I'm processing those things. And you're saying, oh, interesting, to, you know, monument to the unknown God. Mm. And to say, like, well, this is what I think is true, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. in, in a sort of sincere and genuine give and take. I, I'm shocked that I often get emails from people about our church that will say, Hey, if I'm going to come to your church, I want to know what you think about X and Y. Mm-hmm. And 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 they seem to me a little bit confrontational. Obviously, we read emails and texts as if they're all sure. negative anyway. <laughs> yeah. But they seem a little confrontational and a little maybe testing, you know, like you better give the right answer. Mm. And I'll often, because I don't know the people, I don't have a relationship with them, and because they're looking mm. for uh, an answer, I don't write back and say, okay, well, it's really complicated and let's mm-hmm. get coffee. And I'll just say like, oh, we think this. It mm-hmm. sounds like you probably wouldn't like it. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. You're welcome to come hang out if you want to. Mm-hmm. And 99% of the time, what I get back is, I cannot believe you gave me a straight answer. Yeah. Because I feel as if like... It's fine. You shouldn't be threatened by me thinking a thing. I'm not threatened by you thinking a thing. Yeah. And if you want to talk about it, I'm 100% up for talking about it. Yeah. So as you are pastoring people and you're having these conversations, that means that implies we obviously jumped over the timeline of your life. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm yeah. trying to do a Barbara Walters special with okay. you. <laughs> but you earlier mentioned, and, and then you brought it up again, uh, that one of the first things that started to um, probe the... Uh, 
cynicism or or the questions and doubts that that all of us have along the journey of faith not just with god but with church and the idea of organized religion that kind Mm -hmm. of thing came from women in ministry yeah you were taught one thing which is funny because uh as long as i've known you one of your um things that you i I almost use like a pejorative sounding thing like pet projects that's not that's not accurate but one thing that you've always cared deeply about as long as i've known you is the idea of women in ministry Mm. so to hear that like you grew up or your first experience of church was one where women can't even teach at all Mm. is funny because now it's like uh, that's something that you've always cared deeply about but um, you go from that church to another church that again doesn't have women who are teaching or women who are pastors um, and it, that church itself was on a very long term and often painful journey yeah. to figure out what it believed about women in leadership and women teaching and women pastors. And now is a completely different thing mm-hmm. altogether. Did that become for you working at a church and as a pastor now, a place where you care so deeply about a thing and it must have felt, I'm guessing at times like, why does no one else care about this? Why does no one see that this is something that we should be resolving? Mm. Did that become a lonely and trying experience for your faith in church? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what, what was really helpful, I had a, um, a mentor friend at the time who helped remind me that like, if these things are actually, um, right or good, they'll push you further into scripture and, and the kingdom, not further away. Uh, and so, Oh wow. What a great, perspective honestly rare what a litmus test yeah yeah and so he started asking me so where you have this desire to see and this deep belief that women uh should be pastors why and where does that come from and it sent me on this really long uh spiral of saying man what i don't want to do is just be one more person in the crowd or on the team who's just like i think we should do this and then like everybody you know doesn't want to do that. And so I take my ball and go home. Yeah. Like, Oh, here we go. Gavin with his women in ministry. Exactly. I'm stepping on my soapbox again, but instead it, it pushed me not by my, you know, um, righteousness, but by my, uh, mentor <laughs> pushed me internal rather than external. And so I was forced to do that work of going like, man, if I see a problem in the church that I want to be a part of the, the fix one day, cause I want to be a pastor for the rest of my life then I need to do that internal work of asking why. And the more and more work that I did, and I know this isn't a podcast around women in ministry, so I won't give you as long of a spiel as I did about trauma-informed care. But uh, the more that I did, I realized that my, that deep belief in me uh, of women as, as pastors and as elders and as ministers came from the scriptures, not in spite of the scriptures. That the deeper work that I did, the, my belief actually evolved even from a, I think women can do this to, I think we have to have women do this or we're missing half of the voice of God. And it comes for me, not from Paul, not from Jesus, you know, yes, from both of them, but way back in Genesis of going, man, if God made both men and women in his image, there is something unique that women have to offer, uh, the church and the world that men cannot by definition of us being men and not women, which is that ironic uh, twist of, you know, the, the patriarchal church who um, believes that like, you know, in some sense, men can uh, cover for whatever the, you know, we have the same things to offer and men are the ones who are in charge. It's sort of like, well, that's actually a very progressive view of gender. 
to believe that there's no difference. The women between can do the, I mean, the men can do the women stuff. Exactly. I'm yeah. like, that's a very progressive view of gender. I think a historic Orthodox view of gender is that men and women have different things to offer. Um, I think of, we've talked about this woman before, but Nigerian author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and her, we should all be feminist book before she kind of got, um, I don't know if I can use the word canceled, but can't canceled. <laughs> I'm like, I, whatever canceled for being a turf, a trans exclusionary radical feminist. Um, she not a Christian at all to my knowledge, um, had this simple belief that men and women are different and they have unique things to offer the world. And this book was in Starbucks. It was in Powell's, which is a local bookshop, big bookshop here. It was in target. It was in all these big stores. And then it comes out that she believes that trans women's experiences are real and that she has no problem with the idea that a person can be born male and identify as female. But she thinks that there's still a difference between a trans woman and a person who was born female. Um, for a lot of reasons. And so all that to say though, her point still stands that, and this is where I believe she's actually accidentally scripturally correct is to say men and women have different things to offer. And I actually think that's a reason for um, God's ordination of us both being in charge and, and given the, the task to rule and to reign. And we, and we need women. So what I've found is that as I have these issues with the church, they have to push me into the scriptures and into God and not away from, I think of Henry Nouwen who uh, wrote a letter to somebody who was counseling through, you know, this whole like, Oh man, I don't know if I believe in God anymore. And the church is, you know, the church just sucks and all this kind of stuff. And Henry told him that the church will never cease to get in the way of Jesus, but it will also never cease to be the way of Jesus. And I just think that's, that's been my experience. So when I read him writing that, I was like, Oh, I think that rings true to me. Uh, and so that's where, you know, we have, I have another friend who I won't necessarily name, but he talks about this idea of, you know, one of the very common um, pathways to this kind of affirming gender and sexuality or um, progressive movement thing is the idea of like pairing it with slavery and women in the Bible as well. And he said, but the odd thing is when you look at slavery and women in the Bible, the narrative you can easily pick apart verses that look, look, it says women can't teach and look, it says that, you know, we should have slaves and all of that. But he said, if you actually read the Bible, it's very pro women and it's very anti-slavery. And so he said, those two issues have changed because people went back to the scriptures, not because they went out of the scriptures. And, um, you know, oftentimes if you read any theologically honest, um, progressive theologian, they will say, um, there just isn't an example uh, in the scriptures of the scriptures do not speak positively about um, specifically same-sex relationships. And so we need to supersede that and we need to rise above it and understand that God contextualizes to our culture. And so what we see is that's an example of being pushed out of scriptures and away from God and not towards God. I'm not, I don't believe the things that I believe because they're right and I'm right. And I need, I believe them because I think they bring life. And I think that's what God was after. He was not saying like, that's bad because I don't want you to do it. He was saying that actually leads to death, which is like, we've talked about this a thousand times and you have way better stuff on this than me. But in Romans, when Paul says the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life, he's not saying God gives death for sin. He's saying sin gives death for sin. Right. That's the result of sin. Sin pays the wages of death. God gives the gift of life. And so we oftentimes think like, man, I could never worship a God who dot, 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 whatever, fill in the blank. And oftentimes I'm like me neither. And I don't think he does. Yeah. Like I, I actually think 
that I don't believe in that God either. And that I'm hoping pushes people back towards the scriptures and not away from them because right. I actually think there is life in them. So short answer, that, that's it. Like for me, that journey pushed me with my, I found the church to be so frustrating and I couldn't understand why women couldn't speak on stage, let alone be pastors because I had experienced women in my life, including my mom and my grandma, that grandmother pastor me. Why couldn't women, you know, all this thing. And that pushed it from being a social issue for me to a theological issue, to a relational issue with the Lord. And I wrestled with him. And there were years where I felt like in my interpretation of scripture, I just couldn't get to that place of women teaching, but I wanted to anyway. And there is still something in the kindness of the Lord that as I submitted to what I see now and believe now to be an incorrect understanding of scripture, he still met me in that place because my goal was to submit to him, not make him submit to me. Right. Uh, and so I think that that's part of that journey. And all of us are going to submit to someone and something, you know, the, yeah. the kind of one of the fallacies or the illusions, the broken promise of the deconstruction movement and the pro progressivized pseudo Christian spirituality mm -hmm. is that it usually chooses self-denial as an off ramp. You know, the idea that mm -hmm. God would say, you these mm -hmm. there are certain things about your felt experience your innate wiring what you want genuinely and sincerely yeah that you just can't have if you want to follow jesus um you know and he was very forthcoming it's, it was prerequisite not even like you know in scientology you got to get all the way to the top <laughs> before you learn about the space aliens and yeah. stuff <laughs> it was his prerequisite if you want to even start following me in the first place you have to die mm. and he was also pretty forthcoming about like, eh, not everyone's going to want to do this. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's a pretty high ask. And I understand like, you know, it's almost as if he embellishes the, <laughs> the demand to certain people when they're like, Oh, well I'll do it. I'm, mm. I'm ready to die. And he's like, okay, well then give up it. You know, I have to give away all your money or you can't even go back and bury your own dad, you know, yeah. that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and that is a, an I, not just a doctrine, but an idea that is so blasphemous mm. to, uh, a, not just a progressive sensibility, but kind of any fundamentalist sensibility in general. I think, you know, the, well, yeah. um, it's something that happens on the right and the left where the, you know, you, you point out the, the controversial motifs in the scriptures about things like sexuality, slavery, and women in the scriptures. And, uh, both sides of fundamentalism decontextualize the motifs to suit their purposes mm. so Ooh. that, you know, the people on the right, um, have historically decontextualized passages about slavery, slavery to endorse, support, or v validate slavery. Yeah, and have decontextualized passages about women to, um, you know, further misogyny and the oppression of women, and decontextualized passages about um, sexuality to uh, do the same to the same ends. And on the left, uh, the decontextualization of those same passages becomes the, you know, like, uh, so, aha, it's a silver bullet. I just proved that yeah. the Christian religion is inherently oppressive and misogynistic and racist and mm -hmm. um, homophobic or, or whatever it is that you want it to be, um, which is a bit like, you know, isolating a single scene in a, in a movie without any of the other mm. bits of the movie and being yeah. like, see, he, this guy killed this guy. And they're like, well, what happens at the end of the movie? Does the guy come back? You know, it's <laughs> like, um, 
and why, what's, what, what, this doesn't make any sense without the rest of the content, but it's a long book, you know, people mm. don't want to read the whole thing. <laughs> I, I get it. It takes a long time. Yeah. Um, so the idea that we would, God would ever ask us to deny part of ourselves, um, especially stuff that we feel as if we are entitled to, or that, we, you know, mm. like, uh, well, I didn't do anything wrong. And I feel as if this is what I want, whatever it is, a career mm. relationship and, or, or an orientation, whatever it is. Um, if he would ask me to not have it, then he can't be good. He's oppressive and he's mean spirited or he's cruel and he just wants obedience for obedience sake. Mm. But every worldview has objective truth, exclusivity, mm. and will require some amount of self-denial and mm. the, you know, the breathtaking hypocrisy of the fundamentalist progressive movement is that they waltzed into the goodwill and took the rule book from hmm. the, you know, eighties and nineties, satanic panic, Christianity, the fire and the brimstone yeah. started using it with, without the decency to say where they got it in the first <laughs> place. It's like, we made that up. Yeah. Um, and they, uh, so they go around and it was kind of the same thing that Christians have done throughout history, which is to say like, man, I cannot believe that you would have the audacity to say that we're wrong, that y you th that you're right, you're like you, you. I can't believe you had the audacity to do that. That I what I think isn't the the truth, and what you think is the truth, and that I should change mm. what I think and what I do. So let me tell you, you're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I'm right, mm. and you need to change what you're doing to make it more like what I. Every mm. everyone is offering you some version of exclusivity. And self-denial, like if yeah. you have to go against what you think or believe to some extent, because no one can carry out a functional existence mm -hmm. without doing these things. You just act like you don't or say that you don't. Mm -hmm. So as you're going further into the scriptures rather than away from the scriptures to resolve these um kind of uh, doubts and contention that you feel about the church and about something that matters a lot to you and figuring out why it matters to you. Um, you do that within the church. You know, a mm -hmm. lot of people have, um, I think, very legitimate uh, deconstruction stories where there was a period where they were moved out of the church by their own doubts and suspicions mm. before, you know, like resolving those mm. and coming back into the community of faith. Mm. But you did this all in the church. Yeah. Was there ever a time where you were like, man... <laughs> I think I'm probably I'm maybe this or or even saying like there must be a different expression of this mm. you know like was there a temptation to um find something that you know it's it's interesting that you did it because you could have easily gone across the street and be yeah. like man forget y'all these people <laughs> down here yeah. they already do have women in leadership and and they would have been good churches it's not even like you went progressive or mm -hmm. something like there were good churches across the street yeah. with whom you were in collaboration <laughs> yep. with your church that did have women teaching and mm. as elders and overseers, what made you committed for as long as you have been to one group of people in one church? It's mm. a really good question. And I think that um, part of it goes back to that uh, potentially negative part of my personality is like, just by nature, I like to change things and I like to reform things and I like to make them better. Uh, and so I, I think part of me saw it as a cop out to leave and to just go with what already fit, fits. Um, but also part of me knew my personality enough to know that like the grass wasn't greener, like there will be something else at that church I didn't like. Um, and which made me ask the higher question of why am I even here? And at some level, um, not 
eternally per se, but in seasons, my friends had to be enough. It had to be enough that I really loved these people. And it had to be enough that uh, I didn't see everything eye to eye uh, with them. And I believe the scriptures taught something different. Um, and, And it was enough that my relationships mattered significantly to me that I was like, I think this is worth staying. And even now, and I want to say this carefully, like there are things uh, about the church I currently work at that I think I would do things, you know, I don't know, like a different shade of red sort of thing. That's, like That's an inevitability a, probably for everybody who yeah. works there. I, I just think we oftentimes, any church. we assume that pastors or leaders are signing on for l- like everything from top to bottom, left to right, front to back. And it's, just, it's still not true. Um, but... My role now is a joyful submission to the overseers and elders of Bridgetown Church and open dialogue with them. That doesn't look like, I, here's why I think you're wrong. It's instead what our friend Gerald has taught me over the years of assume the best and seek to understand. And so rather than just saying like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? I like scripture very clearly teaches X, Y, and Z. And I guess to be clear, there's no orthodox or doctrinal thing that I disagree with at Bridgetown to be clear. Um, it's more like functional, like, well, yeah, totally. I think we should do this. But uh, instead of going to them and going like, this is crazy. You guys are insane. This is what we need to do. It's sort of like, hey, I'm sure you're intelligent people and I trust that about you and I really like you. So can you help me understand how you landed on this thing? And what I found is like that, you know, it comes back to one of those themes we've talked about already of participation and coming back together and collaboration. Uh, as much as my uh, theological issues need to push me deeper into the scriptures and deeper into God. My church issues need to push me deeper into relationship with those people. And what I've found that some of my friends who have deconstructed and left the church did not uh, was an openness to conversation. Uh, and so what I'm not saying and what you're not saying is stay in an oppressive or abusive church. Like, obviously that's not what we're saying. Uh, but there's there's a point at which you need to be able to have honest conversation about where you're at and be given the space to ask questions without shame or fear or guilt. Um, which is why I say have these conversations all day long. I love it. And like, we have to have that, um, that line between which you've talked about and which is why I'm still where I'm at and why, why I now do this between let's have this conversation and even if I think you may be wrong up front, that actually doesn't matter because my higher value is is you, like you as a person. And we could end this conversation being in totally different places and my love for you does not feel threatened. Um, that's the, the thing that surprises people all the time um, is that the, the, the predominant group of people uh, leaving churches, in my experience, Um, around the issue of kind of some of these progressive conversations are straight, cisgendered, white uh, women specifically. Uh, And I think there's many reasons for that. Um, But oftentimes in my conversations with them, I ask them, well, do you know any gay people here in our church? Or do you know any folks struggling with gender identity here? Or uh, no, they would never come here and all that. And I'm like, actually, there's quite a few of them. and my concern is that you're doing for them what you're accusing us of doing for them, which is deciding out of relationship what they should do with their lives. And my encouragement to you, you're welcome to leave. We won't ask you to stay by any stretch of the imagination, but is to actually have some friends in, in these areas who you disagree with and who you agree with 
and really actually work on doing life together. And so that's what kept me in it was doing life with people who didn't just say like, that's crazy. Get out of here. It was like, oh, that's really interesting. I mean, I remember having conversations with one of my bosses one time about this women thing and him saying like, I want so badly to believe that you're right. I just can't see it in scriptures. So like, let's talk about it. And like, I didn't expect that. I expected like a, nope, this is just how we've always done it. Here's where we're at. This is it. So how can we be hospitable in conversation and really invite people to um, befriend their doubt in a way uh, that helps them to relieve instead of to relive. And I think that that's part of that journey. We have folks, I, I, I could name folks at Bridgetown who are um, openly gay and in relationships and are still here despite knowing uh, where we land on some of these conversations. And I'm always like, what are you guys doing? Like, why are you here? And they're like, oh, you guys take us seriously. You take our discipleship seriously. Um, and we just can't find an affirming church who is really doing discipleship right now. Um, and so we want to be here and man, I think that's beautiful because what I want to do is what people did for me and what Jesus has done for me, which is, and still is doing for me, provide me a space to be while I'm figuring things out. And there are things that I believe now that I may not believe in 10 years. I will still have my, you know, journey towards, um, random things that I'll deconstruct and reconstruct and all of that throughout my life. I think that's part of faithful discipleship to Jesus is to not just swallow everything whole. Um, I do think the boulders won't change. The main things are going to be the same. Um, but that's okay because I want to choose into community. And those are my guardrails. Does this conversation push me closer to the scriptures, closer to, to God and closer to the church? And if it doesn't, I'm asking the question wrong or I'm coming with a premise that's false. Um, and that sort of becomes my guardrails for like, what conversations do I have? And more importantly, honestly, how do I have them? Am I coming out with guns blazing or am I asking for space? And am I really trying to figure out who's the right person and people to do this journey with? And I don't want to fight people. I just, Jesus didn't seem to do that. Like you said, you know, my favorite thing from Jesus is when he's like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Does this offend you? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, it definitely does. Um, and th that, that's the thing. Like he, he left space for that, for people to ask questions and the people he was the most generous with and the people who wanted to be around him the most were the people who were the most outside of his definitions of orthodoxy. So what we were talking about earlier is uh, this idea of like holding openness and orthodoxy. I actually don't think you can only have one. If you just have orthodoxy without the openness to conversation and hospitality, your orthodoxy is not orthodox. I actually feel really strongly about that and vice versa. If you have an openness without an orthodoxy, what are you letting in the house? Like wh what are you, what's the point? What yeah. are you doing? And so you've got to have both. And I think Jesus was our best model of that. Yeah. It's almost like the difference is uh, security in the sense that, yes, um, I feel, and not in any sense arrogant as though like, Oh, I've got it figured out and I'm unmoving and I'm in, you know, invulnerable uh, mm -hmm. because I don't believe any of those things about myself, but I do feel very, very secure in, um, my orthodoxy, meaning, mm -hmm the core values of the Christian movement that have been core to the Christian move movement for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. I believe those things deep down in the depths of my soul and I don't feel threatened by other people's viewpoints. I don't feel insecure about my viewpoints. Um, and so I feel as if orthodoxy for me is like a, an open countryside Mm. where my family exists and where I can move about freely mm. and exchange ideas. And I'm, you know, like there was a time in my apprenticeship to Jesus where 
if someone would have said, um, you know, read this book by Rollheiser, I'd be like the Catholic guy. You know what I mean? I'd <laughs> yeah. be like, oh, that's weird. I'm going to read reading a Catholic. Should I not? Shouldn't I not do yeah. that? You know, because that was the hand I was dealt mm. growing up. Um, and there was even a, a time during my, um, you know, like kind of theological renaissance as an adult and going to seminary and everything where I was so militant about certain aspects of my theology that mm. <clears throat> I felt very defensive and insecure and, uh, you know, like sitting next to someone who's like, well, I think this, I would have really f- argued with them and fought with them. And because people were so gracious and patient with me being a butthole, <laughs> um, that was something that changed over time as well, mm. where I was like, this guy feels, seems like he feels completely unthreatened by my mm. position and says, oh, that's interesting, Josh. You know, I kind of think this different thing, but you know, I, th- I think mm. I'm not m- upset with you about yours and I'm, I'm glad that I get to sit in this class with you and learn from you. And I was like, really? Cause I was so rude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and security means that we can, trade ideas and learn from one another and even move about different expressions of the Orthodox Christian movement without feeling threatened. And, mm. um, you know, it's as simple as like pa- passing a book back and forth and saying like, not needing to put a million disclaimers on it. Like, all right, now listen, yeah. chapter six is weird. Yeah. <laughs> Don't listen to this other thing, but mm. to say like, well, obviously it's like anything, there's some good stuff and some bad stuff, but mm. it's ov- overall it's worth reading. And, um, I think that that, fear that has been uh propagated by the right and the left you know and it it was certainly as american as apple pie in the 80s and 90s during the satanic panic and out Mm. of the whole like the devil's everywhere and in in certainly uh, or even maybe mostly in art and culture like if Mm. you if you listen to this song you're gonna get possessed by the devil and if you watch this movie you're gonna or play dungeons and dragons if you play dungeons and dragons you're gonna summon a demon if you um, even this week, you know, my wife was having a conversation with someone we know that was uh, so terrified of Halloween, you know, mm. deeply, deeply upset about Halloween. <laughs> the reason was something to do with skeletons. They're like, the, oh. you know, there's skeletons everywhere. It, it is of Satan. And mm. I thought, that's weird. God made skeletons. Right. You know, and you have one. <laughs> so yeah. we're, we're in trouble. And they also said half dead things. And I said, mm. what? Half dead or alive is like a binary. Yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> you can't be half dead. But whatever. I'm yeah. getting beyond the point. My my point is that um, when you have security and orthodoxy, you are allowed to exchange ideas, honor people's mm. beliefs that you think are wrong. Yeah, and you can even say with with gracious, loving patience and open-mindedness like oh i don't i don't think that that's true but Mm. you know what i mean it's not it doesn't become a battle of ideas you know it doesn't become so contentious and scary to hear uh and i should tamper that with saying like the other aspect of being mature in orthodoxy is the willingness to have your security situated within the family of God, within the community mm. of God to yeah. be able to say like, well, I'm, I believe these things, but I'm not an island. So yeah. other, there are other people in my life mm. who hold me accountable to the truth of the Jesus movement for hundreds and hundreds of years and say like, well, you think this now, how mm. did you get there? And that's not what we believe. And you know, like that becomes a, a place where there's not just the openness and the, yeah, whatever, sure, totally. But the accountability mm. aspect mm. as well. Um, and that fortifies security 
and, yeah. and allows me to say, you know, when I get up and, and, and when you get up in front of a church and we talk to our church and we teach them about the Bible and about theology, one of the most comforting things to me personally is knowing that I'm not speaking for myself. You know, mm. other people read the things that I'm going to say. Mm. They read the teachings and say, don't say this, do say this, mm-hmm. you know, or, or if I get up there and even in the moment or I'm leading uh, some kind of prayers time or something mm. and say something bonkers, mm-hmm. Someone is going to say, what the heck? Why'd you say this thing? And not in a like, oh, that wasn't cool. Like in a a doctrinal theological way. And I love that because it's like, well, if I go down, we're all going down. Because I I say to the people all the time, you know, if you get mad at me, get mad at everyone because they read the teaching and they all (laughs) said it was okay. Yeah. Um, Hmm. It's a safeguard and it, 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 to me, doesn't feel as if it makes me insecure and, oh, you know, I'm, my belief is threatened. It makes me feel more secure because mm. I have the, the backing of the family, the support of the family and the accountability yeah. of the family. It's good. So you have enjoyed that. And I'm, I don't mean to, you know, like knowing you, I know that that's something that you believe in and mm-hmm. have practiced for years now. One thing that I wanted to ask you about before we go is that you know, in my own journey, when I sat down to write the book and was talking about, I realized that there were all these issues and in, in my upbringing and the my deconversion moments when I was on the precipice of bailing out on Jesus, that all, all the same stuff that are kind of quintessential to most deconstruction stories, bad church experience, abusive um, religious environments and fundamentalism and being mistreated and reactive and emotional and all those mm-hmm. things. But eventually, like you... Um, those, I worked out these things, uh, go through therapy, do spiritual formation. And now I'm a grown up and go to church, work at church. Um, and you know, of course I knew setting down to write down the story that, uh, the, I would not feel comfortable with, nor could I, if I wanted to promote the illusion that like, and then, so there you go, mm. follow Jesus faithfully. And that's kind of the end of the story. Yeah. Um, and I, I reread uh, Brennan Manning's memoir. Um, if you don't know, he's it's basically just the story of an alcoholic. You read Brennan Manning's memoir, who was like one of the most um, prolific speakers and writers yeah. in spiritual formation and discipleship to Jesus and is in many ways responsible for the um, that whole, you know, his expression was God loves you as you are, not as you should be and mm. trying to get people to understand the, the reckless, amazing love of Jesus and had been deeply formational to me in my life. Then you read his memoir and it's a tragedy. It's yeah. like, uh, he was a liar and an alcoholic and a hypocrite. And he had all these moments throughout his life where he was like, and then I almost quit Mm. This is the moment when I was like, ah, I'm through with Jesus. I don't believe mm. in this anymore. And, and then, you know, somehow he'd come back to into faith so, often in the moment and sometimes over long conversations with other people. So I knew that I didn't want to and couldn't with integrity present the kind of like seamless Christian experience. And that's so I didn't deconstruct. Now I'm still a Christian and a pastor. And for me, the deconversion moments of my, um, you know, second stage uh, journey with Jesus weren't, um, oh, I have a irresolvable theological question or, uh, you know, like I was witnessed firsthand this moral failure that threw into doubt all my preconceived notions about the church. It was despair. Mm. You know, for Mm. me, it was like uh, unhappiness Mm. and 
that is not usually the uh, shared deconstruction conversation, especially mm. in the early stages or, or when people go through that thing. It's usually, you know, like the church blew it. Mm. I can't resolve or I can't um, with integrity say I believe these things in the Bible. They just seem so antiquated and bad and I want to be on the right side of history or I'm mad at my mom and dad or, you know, whatever it is. And mm. I have all those things in my story. It wasn't mm-hmm. just that, you know, like, you don't often hear that my deconversion moments now are um, I got really, really unhappy or, or something mm. like that and couldn't find it. I don't, did not question God or God's goodness, mm. did not stop believing in Jesus or the church, mm. but was prepared to give up on things that I hold sacred because um, of the, a dark thing going mm. on in my life. Now that you follow Jesus faithfully and have lived out the complications and what I would argue is the much more difficult path of life in community rather than outside of community. Mm. Um, in this stage of your discipleship, this season of faithfulness, um, you're one of, you know, a few people that, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people who follow Jesus and this is probably cynicism or hurt feelings, <laughs> But sometimes it's like, you know, if someone told me like, oh, they're not a Christian anymore, I'd be like, well, mm. yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Not because <laughs> not because I doubt people yeah. or their integrity as individuals, but just mm. because that's the wallpaper of our lives yeah. and where we live and mm. everything. But there are a handful of people that I'm like, no, that person's going to be a Christian forever. Mm. So I don't have any doubts about you staying Christian. Wow. But there must be something in your story that's like, now when the deconversion moment comes which is like when you feel on the precipice of like am i really going to do this forever and do i believe am i a fraud mm. is this fake what does it appear as mm. wow give me your deepest darkest yeah <laughs> yikes um wow that's a really big question um i i feel like here's what here's i think i'm going to answer this one okay we'll we'll see if this is what you're hoping for yeah um, I'll tell you in real time. <laughs> it's great. Good. It's good. 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 Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think I could give you like a pat answer of like, here's kind of the back pocket, like safe sort of thing. But the thing that came to my mind is um, I oftentimes think, especially for pastors, is that the thing we say the most is the thing that we need to hear the most. Um, and my therapist tells me this oftentimes he's like do you know why you use dramatic language and i was like so that other people hear what i'm trying to say because i don't feel heard in my life he's like no it's because you're not hearing you um and i was like okay actually that (laughs) i don't like that at all but it makes me want to cry so i'm like that's it so i think if i look at it that way um, I think the question then would be like, what are the things that do I, do I find myself saying to people a lot? Um, and I think the thing that I often talk a lot about is the goodness of God. Um, and not in like a triumphalistic, um, name it and claim it prosperity sort of way, but in like a, I'm actually really convinced like my, theology of sexuality comes out of Psalm 103 when it says he satisfies my desires with good things. Um, I don't think God is saying don't do this thing because it's fun. Uh, we've talked, we talked about this. I think he's saying I have things that will actually satisfy you. I don't think these are it. And I think I talk about that a lot. Um, but I think if I'm honest, that's one of the things that I 
have to really lean into in my discipleship a lot. And I have a, uh, a group of friends who we've got like a, I recommend this to anybody, but like a daily text thread. Of, and it's just like, first thing we do in the morning is it's either a Y or an N. And the thing is like, basically how, how did yesterday go? Was it good? Or is there something you need to talk about? And if anybody puts an N, one of us will give them a call, talk for five minutes, pray over them. And the day, and that's that. And it's this practice of confession. And what I've, what I'm realizing is I don't have the power to preach the gospel to myself. Um, I need it to be told to me. And, and that's really hard, like to be vulnerable, like as a pastor, that's really hard because you're the one who has to tell people the gospel. Right. And there's not often people coming alongside being like, did you know God loves you? Really yeah. It can deeply. be objectifying. You're expected to give, not mm-hmm. to receive. Yeah. And, and I fall into that role. So, um, I don't, not naturally in a good way, naturally in a bad way where I, my highest value is to care and to cure. And those are not always good things. <laughs> and, and because of that, I will go home to my apartment by myself as a single man and feel really alone and feel really sad and try to remind myself God is good and try to reconcile all of that. Um, and so I think that's it. If there, if there is a moment of deconversion or a moment of, you know, total deconstruction, um, on its way, I think that that would be the route through which it comes. And, and because I know enough about myself to know that it's why it's not optional for me to do life in community. Um, because I need to have moments in that loneliness and in that pain where I can send a text to a friend and just say, Hey, I'm feeling really alone and I'm feeling really sad and not have to unpack it and not have to prove it and not have to explain it. Um, but to believe that they'll in my vulnerability will respond and that that's it for me. And so it's not insulated in a protective way. I was just reading and meditating this morning in a brand new way on Proverbs three of like, actually think it's Proverbs 4 where, it's, where, where it says guard your heart. And I'm like, oh gosh, we're all triggered for purity culture. Yeah, we know about guarding <laughs> our hearts. But in, in a brand new way, I thought, I think I've always assumed that guarding my heart meant I can't trust what comes out of it. And I'm learning that, no, it's actually I can't trust what goes into it. And I'm not guarding it so that I, you know, X, Y, and Z. I'm guarding it because that next line is because out of it comes all the things that you do. And I need to make sure that I'm doing the work. Uh, it's like it's like I when my friends go backpacking, they have to prep a ton for all you kinds. You don't of, go backpacking. I've done it once or twice. <laughs> I really love it, but I'm like I don't know, man. Um, but they prep. They do all kinds of prep for all kinds of scenarios and situations, and they're always prepared for whatever comes up, uh, so that they don't find themselves on top of a mountain without a tent. And I think we have to look at the spiritual life that way, that like if I know my proclivities, I know my propensities towards overextending at work, um, which is a very people centered job. And I'm an introvert and have to have literally nothing at home when I go home for myself. And so I just sit and watch Um, like last night I watched Seinfeld for three hours. I think it was. Praise him. Yeah, that's right. I'm like, there could be worse shows for sure. (laughs) But what I didn't have because of how much I worked this week was the energy energy to choose something else. And so because I know that's my proclivity, I have to do the work of talking to my people and my friends and to say, hey, when you see these things, I need help. 
Um, and I will, and I have the responsibility to ask for it. Um, and they've agreed to say yes. So those are where I'm, my tendencies are. And so that's where I then need to be in preparation for. I don't, you know, buy a boat. If I'm going hiking on Mount hood, I, I buy hiking gear. I know my proclivities towards loneliness and towards a deep insulated sadness where I believe that the world is out to get me and it's just me and I have to do this all by myself. And so I have to intentionally push into community and life together. Would you have that same accountability, that kind of, um, it sounds like it's intimate accountability because it's Mm -hmm. not just texting a stranger. These are people who you've been invited into each other's lives. Would you have that were it not for the church? No, absolutely. I I mean, I, I would, I would not think so because it's an inconvenience and because it, it is, uh, there's that reality where, where shame is the, um, the soul being overexposed. That's the idea is wherever we feel overexposed, which is all that too much and not enough language. That's where the, heart of shame is when we're overexposed. The The bummer is that healing from shame is appropriate exposure. So what ha- we think healing from shame is to hide. Um, but as we read in the narrative of scripture, which is why it's absolutely brilliant, is it cyclical where we hide, we then feel more shame. And then we hide again and we've, it just kind of goes over and over. And instead we find like the woman caught in adultery is like one of the most outrageous stories because she's exposed uh, in her sin and Jesus gives that appropriate exposure. Or I think of the woman at the well, same exact thing where, where Jesus says like, are you married? He's, a, he's doing an appropriate exposure. And she's like, no. And he's like, and I know it. And the five men you've lived with since are not, you're not married to either. Like, and then he invites, you know, if you think about it, he's number seven, which is a biblical number, but appropriate exposure. And then she goes off to be one of the first missionaries in the whole scripture, which is so compelling. And what is her narrative? Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. It feels inconvenient. It feels scary. And yet it's so healing. So I don't, I don't think that I would, if I didn't have Jesus, if I didn't want to be in the church and have faith, I don't think I would have it. And, and, and it's so life-giving. It's like Jesus knew what he was talking about. Almost. Like almost <laughs> like he did this all on purpose that like we were meant it's the first thing that God says is bad in the scriptures is before sin even enters the picture. And it's that it's bad to be alone. It's before sin. even. It's the wildest thing, which means it's not a moral thing. There's nothing moral to be accounted for. It was a relational thing. It was God saying, that's just not what's best. What's best for you is life together. And we exist in the image of a God who is Trinitarian, who is himself in community eternally. And so we were made for that as well. My final question to you um, is uh, back to Dungeons and Dragons. Please. When you play Dungeons and Dragons and roll dice, <laughs> would you describe your <laughs> dice rolling as consistently beneficial to the team or mm. detrimental? Here's what I would say. I don't believe in luck at all. I, d- I don't believe in that whole weird universe sort of, but I consistently have I think you say throw ice. Is that what you yeah, say? Yeah, he throws ice. It's so bad. And it doesn't matter which dice I use. I mean, maybe this is God's judgment on some sense, but like, so so to go back to <laughs> D&D as well, when you and your NPCs particularly pick on me, it's emphasized by the fact that I just freaking can't roll anything above a six when I'm rolling a <laughs> D20. 
ever. And it's just like, I've gotten to the point where I'll roll and I'll be like, nothing happened because I'm like, <laughs> I don't even want to talk about how I, it doesn't even say the number, <laughs> how I rolled a one <laughs> for the 40th time that night. And it just, it doesn't matter. I can use the, an app on my phone to roll dice or like any, I can use anybody's dice and it's just bad. I'm Joshua S. Porter, and my book, Death to Deconstruction, is out now wherever you like to buy books or audiobooks or digital books. Next week on the Death to Deconstruction podcast, I'm talking to my friend Chad Johnson about the Christian music industry, the pain of seeing people you love deconstruct, and the unique misery of addiction. I think I feel a lot of shame and a lot of guilt because I carry as a both as like a people pleaser personality, but then also as someone who, who wanted, like we started this conversation, who wanted to be an example uh, of Jesus. I feel like, like I probably have let a lot of people down or that I could have done more, that I should have tried harder. Before you go, do me a favor, buy a copy of Death of Deconstruction or buy a copy for a friend rave about it on social media to entice other potential buyers or readers i guess i should say if i want to sound less cynical leave the book a good review on amazon.com follow along with the death of deconstruction podcast and leave it a good review on the apple podcast app and keep up with what i'm doing by following my social media accounts